Welcome to Ludicrously Specific, the audio-based podcast distributed over the internet discussing feature-length motion pictures with an unlikely connection. My name's Doug, and my favorite TV show growing up was The Dukes of Hazzard. Uh, my name's Steve, and my favorite TV show growing up was Starfleet, aka X-Bomber. And my name's Darren, and my favorite TV shows growing up were Danger Mouse and also The A-Team. Why choose? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we didn't say you had to choose one, so that's fine. We like the A-Team too. I'm sure we did. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're talking about uh, our favourite TV shows uh, because it, it's got a bit of a connection, a ludicrously specific connection to our, uh, our theme today. And what is that theme? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> our theme today, three movies featuring guest stars from the 1981 Fantasy Island episode, Delphine slash The Unkillable. Of course. <laughs> Should I? I'll explain quickly that this was what will probably often happen here, which is a reverse engineered theme, <laughs> because I really wanted everyone to watch uh, Little Murders, which is the third film we'll discuss. And originally we were going down films um, that were uh, written and directed by an actor, and uh, that somehow wasn't specific enough. And not, so, not ludicrously specific enough, no. Yeah, so we took a bit of a side turn, and so we'll discuss that as well as Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. But uh, first up... I think we should discuss Fantasy Island, because some people may be too young to know Fantasy Island, or like me, only knew the theme song, the theme intro, I should say, and didn't know the actual show. But one of us does, um, quite well. Darren. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fantasy Island. <laughs> now, it's uh, some might think we've already jumped the shark our third episode in with this ludicrously specific connection, but uh, here's Fantasy Island. It's a TV show. It was an ABC TV show from 1977 to 1984. It was seven seasons, 154 episodes, and I freaking loved it as a kid. <laughs> It's, uh, Not as much as the A-Team, but... No, it's, uh, but uh, I watched what was on, essentially, <laughs> if it was on in front of me. Now, this show, it starred Ricardo Montalban as the en enigmatic, white-suited Mr. Rourke, and Hervé Villachez as his hyperactive assistant, Tattoo. If pop culture knows anything about Fantasy Island, it is... De plane, de plane. Yep, stuck in my head, yeah. <laughs> So the, the show itself, it's about the aforementioned as an overseer of a mysterious island somewhere in the Pacific Island, where people from all walks of life come and live out their fantasies for a price. On family television, we should clarify. <laughs> we should, yes. yes. So it's essentially an anthology show. It's uh, kind of like a static love boat, where it's <laughs> uh, you've got guest stars coming to this island at... Uh, they're all happy or not so happy in their lives usually, and then they leave happier if they leave, um, which is also a family have, show. Seem to have quite a dark, dark underbelly. Can to be, it. Yeah. yes. So which was there's a, there's now a movie adaptation as well, which I may be jumping the gun on. But yes, yes. no, well that's true. There is a, a movie adaptation which unfortunately isn't doing too well at present mm. time. Yes, but um, so. When I say it's like a static love boat, it was from the same creator of the love boat, Aaron Spelling. Who later brought us Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, he brought oh, us... I, I, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead on the... Uh, Whoa. There's a long list here. There's another page to get through here. <laughs> <laughs> so with the, the shows were fairly typical. So they were two to three storylines, uh, independent storylines, never crossed. 
So they usually they didn't interact with each other. None of the characters even met. It's the independent stories met each other in any way. And they appear to arrive at the same time, but mm-hmm. I just noticed it's cleverly edited. So mm-hmm. you cut back one group of guest stars gets off the plane. Somebody reacts to them and then another gets off the plane with no evidence of mm. the previous so celebrities even you know washed up movie celebrities uh, they've got they've got <clears throat> time commitments so yeah you got to get them where you, there when you can i think yeah and the, the stories they sometimes have an edge it's that usual they're careful what you wish for they're often morality tales and then there are episodes um of for example mr rock versus the devil played by roddy mcdowell and uh, that I want to see. <laughs> so it gives you an idea right. of how how far a track they would go down. So the fantasy. I assume that very... was probably in one of the later seasons, <laughs> about the third or fourth, I think. So the fantasies were varied. They'd be um, such as tracking down the lost love, reliving past moments, tracking down a killer. It's uh, trying to find. Uh, it's there's one where a woman was trying to find the love of her dreams. And ended up being sold into sex slavery. What? And family TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's 70s family TV, let's clarify. It ended happily. <laughs> of I think. course. It's uh, for her, I might add. <laughs> so, but so they were all over the show and they were um, often uh, ghosts and vampires and uh, as they got later on in. It's... Um, so with, with this, uh, Ricardo Montalban revealed his character and his motivation. It's, uh, essentially, he, w- he believed he was several centuries old and that his motivation was that he imagined Rourke as a fallen angel whose sin was pride and that Fantasy Island was purgatory. So he was living that out all the time that's fairly deep for seven o'clock on us <laughs> yeah with uh, uh, what uh, bob denver from gilligan's island turning up <laughs> right oh that's uh, yeah wow and and uh, the actual origin this is kind of interesting or hopefully is kind of, well you you judge you're either listening <laughs> or not by this point so. darren's going to get fascinating <laughs> So Aaron Spelling, he later admitted that the original pitch for this whole show was a joke. After a failed pitch, sorry, a failed pitch, I'm getting Doug disease, where uh, Spelling and and his producing partner, uh, Leonard Golding, they had six ideas shot down by the ABE executive Brandon Stoddard. Spelling blurted out, what do you want? An island that people can go to and all of their sexual fantasies are realised. And Stoddard loved the idea. <laughs> and it was booked. And, yeah, and it's, uh, it showed at 10pm. Oh, okay. Oh, so yeah, later show. Okay. Which may be why I didn't see it much growing up, because I remember it being on, but I don't remember getting to see it. Yeah, mm. I seem to remember seeing the sort of the opening, the, you know, the Welcome yeah. to Fantasy Island, and then being shunted off to bed, because, <laughs> you know, I was eight at the time. Yeah. So. <laughs> and Aaron Spelling was already a big hit at that time. He'd done Charles, Charlie's Angels, Love Boat... I thought it you were going to say had... Charles in Charge there for a second. I was going to kick you out. <laughs> <laughs> it, it went on for Heart to Heart, Dynasty, Beverly Hills 90210, as pointed out. Seventh Heaven, which was at one point declared one of the longest-running um, dramas on ABC, and Charmed as well. So he just kept on going and going and going. <laughs> so that's Fantasy Island. That gives you an idea of... Uh, we did actually watch the episode... 
watched and, and so there's some inverted commas around well, that. Well, watched but not enjoyed. <laughs> but we, we watched the episode of yeah. uh, Fantasy Island that links all these three actors. I actually did a little bit of extra homework and I watched the pilot episode of Fantasy Island, which in many ways was so much more interesting than the hour-long episodes that we watched. Although, as, well, a, as a fan of clunky men in, in monster suits, the, the silica monster from this one really hit home for me. That, yeah, that's what you do when you want to make a monster and you got 12 bucks to make it. You, it, what, it, what, you refer to it uh, as, I think you... Oh, it looked like a, like a Matt Groening... Um, a Matt Groening... Uh, it's like cre- Creature from the Black Lagoon, yeah, weird, but Matt Groening. <laughs> weird buggy eyes and small and underbite, and it's, yeah, it was, it was not, you know, Godzilla in any way, shape, or form. It was, it was, it was pretty sad, but, you know, you do what you can on a TV mm. budget in the 80s. Yeah, it, and there was magic tricks, like making magic. a banana move across the screen <laughs> in the Delphine, because Delphine was yeah. having her wedding there, and, uh, uh, oh, why are we even recapping? <laughs> But in terms of the, uh, just to touch on very briefly, and I know that uh, these two are champing at the bit to move on to the actual movies we want to talk about, <laughs> it's, but it's my time now, so I'm talking. <laughs> so, <Proceed>. the, <laughs> so the pilot of Fantasy Island, it, um, there were three storylines. One was the, uh, uh, one was someone attending their own funeral to find out who, uh, who was loyal and who wasn't. Um, one was the, um, a, a dangerous game uh, in a, on the TV show. So the, the film that was made back in 1932, Dangerous Game, I think it is. The Most Dangerous Game. The Most Dangerous Game, yep. And the other was the, the one that seemed the least sinister was about an elderly colonel played by a young but make-upped Bill Bixby coming to the island and wanting to relive a moment in his life where he met someone, fell in love with them, and it's all lovely. And ah, oh. no, I was waiting for you to say you want to relive when he killed a man during the war. <laughs> well, funny you should say that because what? <laughs> so it is all lovely, and he meets her, and they it's uh, and it's like it's all for the first time, and they unmake up him, so like he's reliving the memory. And we see that he killed this lovely woman that he connected with. Wow. wow. And, uh, and he does so again to the person playing, uh, acting the role that Mr. Rourke did. Uh, later to reveal that he didn't kill her, he goes mad, quite insane, and he leaves the island gibbering. Right. That's that's the way to the happy off a, bedtime kitty kicking off a show with a bang. Really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel like there's a real lack of this kind of show now, and I mean I don't watch as much mm. TV, um, but I feel like most of the series are like things where you have to watch two and a half seasons to know what's going on. We've gone the other and, way, and if there are standalone things, they're truly standalone, like um, Black Mirror or something like that, mm. where there's literally no binding conceit they're just a pure anthology mm. show with and I, I and you you think about shows like this where it is like we have this meta framework and we'll fit everything mm. into it but we'll preserve the meta framework and let those characters exist and it seems just much less common for something with this sort of wide scope of 
mm. um, potential scenarios. Yeah, there was a, a late 90s remake which had uh, Malcolm McDowell as Mr. Raw. Oh, I remember hearing about that. It's, which was a darker take. It was more along the lines of the pilot. Right. And I remember, having never seen it again, but I remember in the pilot episode that one of the, the main people who was having their fantasy, um, right near the end, managed to be uh, impaled upon a rock, on a, a jutty-out rock thing. Okay. This was still a 7.30 TV show. <laughs> right. It didn't last. It only no, lasted really? about <laughs> half a season. I think they made about 10 episodes. So they didn't have time yeah. for Malcolm McDowell versus, versus Ronnie McDowell. <laughs> I, well, I think the, the argument here was that Malcolm McDowell was more akin to the devil <laughs> than, <laughs> than the original was. But I digress. That was uh, as much fun no, no. as I had talking about that. Well, just to wrap up also with the current one is the Blumhouse uh, yes, yes, production. And so yes. so I, I don't think I mentioned that it is specifically even more of a horror take on it. Yes. And that's, that was, it was interesting coming back and watching this is that... Mm. Um, People have been like, what have they done to my pure and innocent fantasy island? <laughs> and it's like, no, it really wasn't that pure and innocent no. ever. No. So, yeah. um, And it depends on how the, it's in terms of the movie itself, how far away it is from the TV show would be depending on how it ends. If, if Mr. Rourke is seen as an all-out evil character, then yes, that's completely different. But if he's sort of, there's still some sort of morality Involved, then then it's the show, or something like it. Right, right. So should we move on to our first film? Yes, with yes. one of our lead actresses. One of our lead actresses. Uh, so one of our lead actresses in this episode was Annette Funicello. So of yeah. course that led us on uh, from Fantasy Island to uh, Beach Blanket Bingo. Uh, oh dear! From 1965, <laughs> uh, directed as all the Beach Party movies were by William Asher. Much like the Carry On movies, we had a director who started with one and ended up doing 12 films in the space of four years. Uh, I was a little bit about Annette herself. Uh, she was, of course, first known as a Mouseketeer in the original 50s Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, as a child, she's very shy, and she took dance and music lessons just to improve her self-confidence. And she was one of only a couple of Mouseketeers discovered by Walt Disney himself. So he saw her performing in uh, the age of 12 in Swan Lake, and she's going to be one of my Mouseketeers. There was actually, it sounds quite sinister, there was the red team of Mouseketeers, which was the top tier of Mouseketeers. There was all the others right. below that. There was about eight of them which were the top tier put into that. And he proved that right. She was given a seven-year contract at Disney, and by the end of the first year of the Mickey Mouse Club was getting 6,000 fan letters a week. God. Which is just insane wow. for a, you know a thirteen year old girl. <laughs> uh, she was on the show uh, for four years. The show eventually was cancelled just because of networks not being able to work out about who was going to be running it uh, the next time. So she moved on, became sort of a a pop idol, but wasn't. They didn't really want to push her as a pop idol. She could sing, but they didn't. They wanted to move her into movies. So she ended up doing uh, the Shaggy Dog was her first movie. Uh-huh. Uh And then along came AIP. And American International Pictures, much like Blumhouse today, <laughs> would spend tiny amounts of money in the hope of making a shit ton of money. And yes. they were very, very good at it for quite some time. And, and appealing to people's more primal instincts. Primal instincts. <laughs> Just going for, looking for what was, what was hip, what was trendy. And in the 60s, 
the beach and pop music and teenagers, even if they weren't actually being played by teenagers, because she was 22 in this movie. It's and, essentially yeah. American Pie for the 1960s, Pretty isn't much, it? It was yeah. a sex comedy and if it, but, but made as innocent as possible. Mm. I mean, it's it's a very cartoony series. Yeah. And they, they made it for, uh, I think, two to three a hundred thousand dollars was the budget in 1964. They grossed 2.3 million, which already that's about 20 million these days. This is off Beach Blanket Bingo, off, uh, off the original Beach Party okay. in 1964. And then after that, it was chocks away. Here we go. And there was 12 movies either directly related to the Beach Party or spin-offs in the next three and a half years. At one stage, they released two movies within a month of each other. And I've even got the list, if you want to find here, all the places they took oh, this beach. Oh, please, please do. <laughs> please do. I'm going to. <laughs> but it's nice that he thinks he... Yeah, I've, done, this is, this is, I've done a little bit of research here. <laughs> so they start off on the beach. Beach Party, 1963. Uh, March of the next year, Muscle Beach Party. Uh, and two and a half months later, back to the beach for Bikini Beach which I also own, if you want to see that later on. No. No? <laughs> I, I abstain. Uh, they abstain. Four months after that, November of two, 1964, they went inside. Pajama Party came along. Four months? Four months between shoots there. And then another six months went by before Beach Blanket Bingo arrived. Why so long? In- well, well, I'm wondering <laughs> if it's actually they just shoot them for like over the summer for like three mm. months <laughs> and then just you know, parcel them out so they're hitting theaters every like i'm suspecting that's probably true because beach blanket bingo april 14th 1965 it came out yeah ski party came out june 30th of the same year yeah what your your story it's it's, no not skeet party ski party ski party has an entirely different meaning (laughs) (laughs) that would not pass muster in uh and then of course the classic how to stuff a wild bikini uh the spin-off movie uh sergeant deadhead and Another spin-off in 1965, Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine, which is just a, a yeah. wonderful piece of camp insanity that I absolutely love. Uh, and then the one of the, my favourite titles of all time, 1966, Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. <laughs> <laughs> that was the last Beach Party movie that had two <coughs> stock car racing ones, Fireball 500 and Thunder Alley. And pretty much by then it was it was all she wrote for Beach Party. Then, a lot of the major What about nineteen eighty seven? Didn't they do a return to the they beach? They did return to beach <laughs> yeah, I don't know if, uh, who actually made that one, but they and definitely did is that. Is Blood Beach part of the <laughs> I don't think so. There was a be. lot of the um the main studios jumped on board as well because it was the Gidget movies came out from Columbia. So, oh, right. So this was the template that all these other Finished, kind of um, yeah. beach icons. The bandwagon got very full very quickly. So yes. uh, I think um we had there was 20th Century Fox went crazy. They had about four or five of them, including the horror of Party Beach. So they were the only ones to try and make a, a horror movie that also had people singing and dancing on the beach. And that's quite yeah. a fun little flick. Uh, and it really took off. It made the careers of Frankie Avalon and, and Annette Fornicello huge again. And then within a couple of years, Frankie Avalon was out. Fabian was in, and it was all done for that. And uh, and it continued doing sort of TV and things after that, but didn't do a huge amount of movies. She really only did about 30, 30 or 40 movies right. after, and TV appearances after that. And uh, she passed away uh, from uh, a few years ago, actually. It was probably about three or four years ago, I think. Also quite recently. Yeah, fairly recently. Yeah, but the movie itself... I should give you a plot synopsis since I chose this movie. <laughs> and I wrote down the plot synopsis. Had you seen this before? I have seen it in passing, I think. I saw it... Uh, my wife... Watched a whole series of them. They played on MGM right, channel okay. years ago, and she watched all of them. And I 
topped in and out and right. you know watched a few bits. Don't think I ever sat all the way through Beach Blanket Bingo. And so I did write With down a synopsis, but um, I lost the postage stamp I wrote it on. So right. <laughs> basically, a bunch of kids on the beach. There's a song that tells us all about what Beach Blanket Bingo is, which is fairly simple rules for Beach Blanket Bingo, isn't it? It's there's a boy and a girl and a blanket bingo. It's not much of a game. And lots of sand. But there is also a scene where they're literally playing bingo. Bingo, yeah. But then when they explain the rules, bingo is no longer part of it. No. Um, Which is far from the least inscrutable thing about this movie. (laughs) I I did look up to see if there was such a thing. There is a thing called beach bingo, but I couldn't find the rules for it. All I could find was a children's game where you actually give it to the kids to shut them up for, you know, half an hour, you know, if you can spot a man fishing off a pier. It's kind of like travel bingo, the same sort of thing you give to them. Uh, I did try and come up some rules for Beach Blanket Bingo. I really couldn't. I, I hope Doug, uh, sorry, Darren, might have uh, come up some rules. As you were trying to? No. Well, I, it's just... <laughs> is the rule don't talk about it? <laughs> That's probably the first idea. I came up some rules for... Don't, don't encourage people to watch it. <laughs> I came up yeah. some rules for ludicrously specific bingo. I bet you That's uh, much more important. Which has a space for... Doug mentions Werner Herzog, uh, a space for Darren does uh, an amusing accent, and the free space is just Steve saying, I haven't watched that movie. So, uh, but basically, the, the, the plot, uh, so to speak, of this movie is the, pretty much the same as the other plots. There is Frankie and Annette. They're a, a couple, boyfriend and girlfriend. They have a, a bit of a falling out, this time over parachuting, of all things, skydiving, that he wants to yeah. skydive. He doesn't think she could skydive. There is a lot of sexism plastered across yeah. the movie. Then there's a subplot, which one of the secondary characters, in this case, Bonehead, he falls in love with a mermaid because reasons. And then there's a comedic villain, the uh, the uh, Eric von Eric von Zipper. I yeah, wrote Eric it down. Von Zipper. Yep, you got who, it. Eric he's von in Zipper. Every movie, he's the comedic leader of a. Very, very slapsticky motorcycle gang. And then eventually there's a sped-up fight, a chase scene, and the movie ends with a song. And there's a lot of songs. It's really yeah. just a movie to hang songs on. Because, yeah, I actually thought the plot of the movie was that this um, record executive is trying to launch mm. the career of Sugarcane. This too, yes. And I, at first I was like, oh my god, that's where the Sonic Youth got this thing <laughs> from. And then I realized Sugarcane was the name of the character that uh, Marilyn Monroe played in Some Like It Hot many years prior. Um, and so... They do this stunt where she fakes a skydive, which is how they get all the kids interested in skydiving. Um, mm-hmm. Frankie rescues her, and that creates some kind of jealousy, but not really. And, and so the record executive has this reporter in town, to and, and somehow like getting these 40 kids who hang out on the beach interested in this mediocre songstress will be the make-or-break thing for... It's all very... It's, yeah, as that's say, it's, ar- that's it's, arguably as much the plot as anything. Hang because it's her that gets kidnapped, isn't it? It is, yeah. That, it's it's, it's Sugarcane, played by Linda Evans. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. From Charlie's Angels, but not her singing voice. And okay. oddly enough, it was not supposed to be Linda Evans up until a few months before. It was Nancy Sinatra that was going to be in the role. And then her right. brother was kidnapped. Oh. And when she found out that it had a kidnapping plot in it, she turned it down. So that would have actually been Nancy Sinatra's first role. So wow. Linda Evans was subbed in, yeah. and her voice was dubbed in, because she was not a singer, of course. So it's funny that um, in terms of people who are actually made the movie, um, that it's a movie that's ostensibly for the youth, but you've got Buster Keaton, Buster Keaton. as the side... Um, 
horny old man chasing <laughs> the um, gold lame and fur bikini clad uh, woman like the corner of a mad magazine he was in three panel. movies I think and every time his, his role was to hang out with her and do some shtick and it's for me it's a huge Buster Keaton fan he's my favourite solid yes. movie star you know kicks yeah. the shit out of Chaplin anytime you know, come at me internet come on uh, but uh, it's just it's kind of sad seeing him because there's, there's a oh, scene so which I'll, well, I'll talk mm. about later where some comedy's going on and everybody's laughing and Buster's the only one in that room not laughing at that comedy because mm. he's not he doesn't, either doesn't know he's on camera or he doesn't give a shit he died less than a year after the yeah. making of this film yeah. and I, and still managed to get two more under the belt <laughs> <laughs> they show up fast the other um, actor who really stood out to me is not wanting to be there was uh, Timothy Carey who plays the kidnapper mm. um, who basically wow. spends most of the movie asleep until he has um, his little perils of Pauline thing at the end and uh, it's worth noting that just two years prior he made life such a living hell for Kubrick on the set of Paths of Glory that they eventually wound up filming around him and like putting fake backs of him in scenes so that he would appear to be in them because he was so such a prima donna and um you know and he went from being one of the few actors kubrick would work with multiple times <laughs> killing in paths of glory to beach blanket bingo in the space of like three years wow. and Such you know an odd partner too i mean he just plays everything <clears throat> i mean the, the amount of times we heard booby if we were playing a drinking game with the word booby yeah. yeah you wouldn't <laughs> have made it to half time but yeah he was he just seemed to be such an out of place he did not seem to connect to anybody else in that movie, as you say. He was just there, just being himself. Mm. Yeah, but nothing really connects, right? I mean, no. it's a, it's it's more like watching a talent show than watching a film. <laughs> you know, it's like Don Rickles shows up, and that was actually kind of revelatory for me because that was probably the most entertaining part of the film. Because yeah. I've only seen Don Rickles as like bit. the old man doing a variant on his his shtick. And he here just he did was his like, act. Well, yeah, but yeah. it was like I had never seen him yeah. like in his prime right. doing his act as opposed to you know, 20 or 30 years on where he's, like, mm. being, like, forced to do it in greatest hits kind of Yeah, but way. that scene was remarkable because, I mean, literally, I mean, he's supposed to be introducing a band for people yeah. who haven't seen this film. And they basically just let him loose. And for about, about four or five minutes, he just rips the cast a new one. He rips Frankie Avalon <laughs> to his face on camera, yeah. busts the fourth wall down. You're too old. You're 42 years old. You can't sing. Did I mention you're old? And Frankie's sitting there smiling. You know how many, how long he was in the next movie? Six minutes of screen time. <laughs> and then Fabian took over because right. I think Frankie decided, baby, this isn't for me anymore. Right. But yeah, Don, and then Don is just demolishing. And as I say in the background, Buster Keaton is just staring off into space. He's not finding this funny at all. No. It's not his uh, his idea of comedy. Neither do we. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this, for me, the secondary characters were the more interesting people. Oh, yeah. yeah. My best parts of the movie for me was, was Bonehead, who's he's played as a, uh, the kind of the dumb guy, but he's yeah. they never make fun of him in a cruel way. He's just lovably dumb. And he falls in love with Lorelei, the mermaid. And uh, basically from there, every time it came back, I was rooting for him. I wanted him mm. to succeed. And he's, it's just that storyline was much more interesting so, than watching so Frank and So, A, Nett, you just used you? the word storyline, and storyline. B, you just had, <laughs> had an emotional investment in a character he, in this film. I find both these things had, fascinating. He had an arc. It wasn't a tall arc. It's not, it's not St. <laughs> yeah. Louis. It mm-hmm. is St. Louis. It's just, it's a nice little bump there. But you see, there was actually apparently a deleted scene where he went and bought the swimsuit, that, or the um, dress, excuse Dressy. me, that he gets for the... Uh, 
mermaid later. So, you know, they really they really devoted time to that story. <laughs> that they cut so that Don Rickles could insult uh, people for longer. And when it comes to Bonehead, it's... Um, so was it Jody? What's his name? It was Jody McCree. Jody McCree. He, in fact, was the only member of the cast that could surf. If everyone else right. was... Um, no, no, he, no. Yes. Well, they didn't have to. They stood in front of a, a, a green screen or a blue screen at the right. time, and and I wonder how many scenes were actually shot at the beach. I mean, certainly not the one where there was the song. It, no, no. It, it was, was like the insp- I was, I wrote down. Am I watching the inspiration for green screen on the room? <laughs> <laughs> where where Annette Finicello and Tommy, what? No, what's his face? What's his name? Uh, Frankie Avalon. Uh, they're um, singing along the beach, and they are clearly not on it. No. Right, yeah. They're on a soundstage. They're on a soundstage, and it's but there was, really there was dialogue scenes out. shot on that soundstage. There was, I mean, the yeah. surfing stuff you always expected. There'd be waving around, pretending to surf. Footage behind them, but then near the end, they're, they're literally just yeah. having a, wrapping up the movie, and they're on an obvious screen. It's like, did you forget to film? <laughs> I mean, there'll be a practical reason, which is no. that just actually the sound of the waves will mm-hmm. be very difficult to get audio against. And when you're de- dealing with people who are wearing very little, it's very difficult to conceal a wireless microphone on Especially them. in the 60s, um, I'm guessing. Yeah, I don't even know where that technology was at that point. Yeah. But, you know, you watch other, like, kind of low-budget films from that point where they you have people who don't know what they're doing that shoot at the beach, and they're like... <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen that film. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have preferred to see that film. Yeah. Another note on Jody McCree, though. He went on to become a producer... Uh, and it was a producer and narrator for a certain 80s TV show we've already mentioned. He did narration for the 18. Oh my lord! That's his voice doing wow. the. Uh, can you oh, do the? Can you I, do? The, I can't remember it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It's uh, it's basically giving the statistics of the. If you can find them. Yes. Wow. You can hire the 18. That's him, and he produced quite a few things up to the age. So he didn't do. He did a bit more acting after that, but went into producing and produced some. Good television. For, well, yeah. good television I haven't gone back and revisited to find out if it was still good television, but I'm sure the A-Team's still good. Oh, maybe. I, <laughs> I, um, I, I read a lot about reviews of this film afterwards. I, tr- I really struggled watching this, is obviously clear. And like, <laughs> I mean, it was, and from about two minutes in where there's like lots of like kind of slide whistle sound effects and stuff. Yeah. Um, I, it reminded me of, I just watched... Um, matinee actually the other day the joe dante film Mm. and there's a scene where the kids um get taken to see a family film and they go see this family film about um this naomi watts actually plays the character whose um uncle or something is turned into a shopping cart and the shopping (laughs) cart like knocks out the bad guys and stuff and like they're just sitting there as an eight-year-old and six-year-old like our intelligence is insulted by this. <laughs> and, and so I sort of th- felt that way. But it, there was like a whole like kind of fandom for Beach Blanket Bingo, which just went down the, um, actually, this is, you know, Dada surrealism. And, um, yes, and I mean, the, the, the big thing I think, you, you talk about the sound effects, because of course that's Harvey Lembeck and the Rat Pack. So this is his, his comedic, super comedic, super slapsticky group of, you know, evil bikers yeah. and they're not evil bikers but everything that it had sly whistle sound effects and there was a, you probably were as confused as Darren looks right now because there was there was so many referencing to things you wouldn't have seen mm. if you hadn't been in the movie theatre four months earlier right they, they mm. obviously there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of Brando references Brando references yeah yeah I caught those but, but then there's, um, there's at one stage they rip off the duck soup 
uh, motorcycle gag mm. where Harvey Lambert hops into the sidecar and then say, hops out because I'm not going to be left behind again. But he said it beh- again. That's because that happened in the previous movie mm. where they ripped that gag off. Right. And I have a question. How did he get to be the leader of the gang in the first place? He's the leader of the gang. So he is. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 was... yeah. He he basically right from that, that opening movie from the bits of the that I've looked because I looked at a few trailers and things like that. They just obviously thought he was the funniest thing out there and oh, dedicated yeah. an awful lot of screen time to Harmony and McTwitten around. His so. scenes were revolutionary anti-comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of revolutionary anti-comedy, Paul Lynn's in this film. Oh. We haven't even mentioned Paul Lynn. <laughs> well, who did he play? Uh, Paul Lynn, he was the, uh, the, the chief exec. The uh, Oh. He's the one with the voice. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which yes. I, I remember as a kid, I, I loved Paul Lind from two things. It was uh, It's the Wolf, the it's a Hanna-Barbera cartoon where Lamykins, it's a very simple animated story where Lamykins would say, It's the Wolf, it's the Wolf. I am flashing back so badly right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, he would play the wolf. Yeah. Oh, there you are, Lamikens. And that is essentially uh, pretty close to what Paul Lynn's whole performance <laughs> was. The whole, his whole career, really. <laughs> and he was also in Bewitched as Uncle Arthur. Yeah, and is he, he, in this movie, he's see, so often he just seems to be going off script. He just seems to be making mm. references to the camera like they've let him loose. I mean, apparently Frankie Allen said in the very first Beach Party movie, he, tr- he tried doing the actor thing of, my character wouldn't say that. And the director literally said, just read the words, have fun. And that was his direction. <laughs> so it's kind of, we're getting paid for this gig. Yeah. Here's your script. In uh, fairness to Paul Lind... What's your motivation? Your paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> In fairness to Paul Lind, he was a, a, a big Broadway star and he came to fame from uh, Bye Bye Birdie. He was in the opening of the original production of that and then later on went to the... Uh, was in the uh, movie production of that that starred uh, Dick Van Dyke. So um, that's Paul Lind. Who was the actor that played uh, the reporter that everybody was excited was in town? Uh, he is actually a real reporter at the time. He really? He, he looks like it. He, he looked um, as effervescent. I'd have to look up his real name because I don't think I actually wrote it down, but... He was actually a reporter and gossip columnist in the 1960s. Right. So they just brought him on as himself. Uh, and oh, here we go. There's a, there's a line that database. fascinated me because he talks about um, th- when he sees the dancing, he makes a reference to uh, in Ohio with a swarm of bees, which is a lyric that um, the National use in Blood Buzz, Ohio. And I, I've, ne- <laughs> I've ne- not been able to confirm that the Nationals' lyric is inspired by Beach Blanket Big Joe. But that would be one of the most... Inspirational films. This is your chance to come on the air and lay the record straight. Yeah, his name is Earl Wilson. So, um, yeah, he uh, was an actor and a writer, and, as I say, he was... uh, his nightly journeys by taxi and telephone through the parties, cabarets, and clubs of New York's entertainment world, crammed his notebooks, and then he got himself a newspaper column. Uh, and uh, he was also a friend, apparently, of Lucille Ball. So, yeah, Hollywood connections. But, yeah, he definitely, you could tell he wasn't exactly a trained actor. He was brought on to play himself. 
Yeah. Well, they're, they're kind of over under going on between him. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, well, that person's eating all the scenery. I've got nothing else to do. As an actor, he made a great reporter. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the people who were, the person we haven't talked the most about was actually Annette Fonicello, right? Because she, I mean, she is our, our lead. Frank is our lead male, but they're the least interesting part of this. They basically, they, they start bickering just because the script calls for it. It's, yeah. And then they stop and they sing a love song to each other. And then they bicker some more. It's like, could you just pick a lane? There was a sort of feminism-ishnessness yeah. uh, yeah. that was... Once you scrape off the sex. In terms of the, the storyline, I mean, it was about um, it's Frankie Avalon and the gang didn't think girls could do exciting, adventure things. Um, Which is nuts because it's literally watching a girl do an exciting, adventure thing that ab- starts this whole exactly. story in motion. Yeah. And, and one of the teachers yeah. of the skydiving is female. And Annette yeah. Finicello thinks she can, and in actual fact doesn't. She ends up getting very sick near the, at, um, and doesn't quite achieve what Don't she... Don't she know that she jumps? She does oh, a jump. Oh, yeah, right yes. Maybe she throws up afterwards. Throw up after. no, oh, no, her, face goes her, face go, her face goes green halfway That's down. What it I is. thought she's been abducted by aliens, but, uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't call that, that, that the empowerment jump. She did the empowerment jump. Yeah. And she, she did do it, yes. Up yours, Frankie. I am woman... Hear me sing. But there was an awful lot of kitchen advocacy in this. Yeah, um, did which ask was it very troubling. Stay in the kitchen at one stage, yes. which. Yeah, and then of course we ended up with a combination Benny Hill Chase and Batman fight. So oh, it yeah. was literally. Well, and, and, and yes, it's literally the perils of Pauline, I think. Yeah, it's yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the chasing you there, of course, because the, the whole undercranked chasing is, was a staple. Benny Hill, of, yes. Of those, and it did need yakety sex just to really round it off. <laughs> But, I mean, for me, I can't hate this movie. As I'm going to say that a lot about some movies, which I'm fairly sure other people in this room will hate. Uh, but it's just, it's a it's a goofy, it's innocuous, it's, you'll forget about it afterwards. And as I say, if you which try it right Which is probably now, a good thing. It yeah. probably is. But, I mean, you can go back and watch I, it again I th- later. I think, to be fair, if I'd watched it on a Friday afternoon with a couple beers and, like, hanging out and talking with people, like, it's not as offensive as Carry On. No, um, no, it's, it's true. I had a genuine laugh. And it does end with the, one. <laughs> an important philosophical qu- question or set of questions. Is there a moon? Is there a sky? <laughs> Are there dreams? <laughs> I think there's something in that for all of us. <laughs> I think there is. There we go. Oh, someone's calling that. It'll be uh, mm-hmm. the public producer calling to correct us on a few things. That's <laughs> <laughs> the national. To, uh, yeah. Yes. Hey, yeah. There we go. Well, we came up with the swarm bees all on ourselves. <laughs> We're suing you and the producers of Beach Blanket Bingo. Um, well, speaking of... Uh, Women? <laughs> well, this is not going to be Not our best segue. We've done no. better segues. Uh, no, but uh, our, our movies this week were pretty varied. Let's yes, put it that way. Yes, so Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, 1974, Martin Scorsese. Um, is a few things. It's the fourth Martin Scorsese picture. He had um, done uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door? And then uh, done Boxcar Bertha, which was his, you know, cheapy to get commercial status. And then he got told by somebody, make your films personal. And then he did Mean Streets. And Mean Streets rocketed him to a degree of fame. And in fact, uh, Ellen Burstyn was cast in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore before uh, a director was chosen. And she saw uh, Mean Streets and interviewed him on the basis of that and said to him, well, I really like what you did in Mean Streets, but... You know, I, I don't. There aren't any women in Mean Streets, and what do you know about women that you can make a film about women? And he said, "Nothing, but I want to learn." 
And apparently that was the right answer. And it led Ellen Burstyn to uh, an Academy Award, and uh, as well as a no- nomination for Diane Ladd, and a nomination for Robert Gitchell for his uh, screenplay. Robert Gitchell also wrote uh, Bound for Glory, Mommy Dearest, and the La Femme Nikita remake Point of No Return. So had a varied career in uh, I would say so. That. Um, mm-hmm. He also might have been a bit nonplussed because there were quite a few divergences from his screenplay and the finished product of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh, I didn't research Vic Tabak as uh, deeply as you researched uh, Annette Funicello, but he is... Um, his parents were from Aleppo, uh, and so he's Syrian, but grew up in Brooklyn and then came to um, California and grew up there and had only, a, I think, a few years career before uh, the role that came to define him because unexpectedly, off the back of this relatively downbeat, non-commercial film that was nonetheless successful, we get a TV show called Alice, which features only one original actor from the film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and that's Vince Tabak as the diner owner Mel, who uh, follows uh, Alice and Flo through their adventures at the diner, and uh, he eventually earned two Emmys as a result of that role in Alice Mm. and continued that role when um, Alice ended and uh, the spinoff show Flo happened. So uh, really the role that defines his career, which I don't think you'd anticipate watching the film. Um, So that's sort of the landscape around Mm. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, Just to tie back to Fantasy Island, (laughs) when Vic has a very short appearance in there as a Texan who is seemingly there to be obnoxious in order to get Delphine to cast a magic spell oh, to cause yeah. him to disappear, to cast doubt in her fiancé's mind as to whether she has a secret she's not telling. Is that correct? That's, yeah, that's yeah, kind of correct. He's channeling Clifton James badly. I, yeah. it, was, it's a, it is a huge performance. There yeah. is no doubt about it. A little bit too much for small screen. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's really what he does. He turns up there just to annoy her into zapping him into the ether briefly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, paycheck's a paycheck. But <laughs> yeah. not, one of, not one of his finest roles, probably. <laughs> no. Um, and I realized I really had not seen very much of Tayback on screen at all, apart from having watched a lot of Alice when, when I was a kid, which I didn't remember until... Mm. Halfway through the movie, halfway, this Yeah, thing? yeah. Same I was here. Like, Same yeah, here. And, uh, which uh, now I'm trying to work out if there's other Martin Scorsese movies that I haven't realized that, you know, is <laughs> Taxi actually feature one of the characters from Taxi Driver? Or, you know, is there a uh, King of Comedy spinoff that I don't know about? Uh, <laughs> what you didn't mention with Alice is that it actually ran for nine seasons. It was from 1976 to 1985. Ah, and 24 episodes were directed by William Asher, who directed Beach Blanket Bingo. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Everything is connected. Wow. Everything is connected. <laughs> uh, so, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, one thing I, I thought you might have mentioned but didn't is that the originally Alice Doesn't Live Here, the role of Alice was uh, offered to Shirley MacLaine. Which would have been a very different, very different role. version yeah. of this movie, I think. Yeah, I didn't know that, actually. I, I did most of my background research from the DVD, which leans heavily on Ella Burstyn's ah. interviews, and she doesn't do a lot to foreground Shirley MacLaine. There's also some nice Chris Christopherson uh, interviews where he talks about it being very early on in his acting career, 
and um, that he was quite nervous. So he and the um, actor who played the son, whose name I can't recall at the moment, uh, bonded together because they were both the um, newbies to acting on set. No, I don't have to. No, I I didn't take a lot of notes on this movie. I started, as I normally do, I get my little notebook and I start writing down a few things. I did page after page on Beach Blanket Bingo. On this one, after about three sentences, I put the notebook down and went, I'm just going to enjoy this. Because this looks like a movie that it's not going to have, I have to write down this plot point, this one's plot. It's just we are watching a slice of life road movie. Uh, we haven't gone to the plot, but I'll allow you to oh, give yeah. a little so, plot on that one. So uh, there, here's a plot summary I prepared earlier. Uh, <laughs> when frustrated singer-turned-housewife Alice gets a second chance at life, she hits the road for Monterey, California with her son. But with no money or work experience, she's got a long journey to achieve her dreams. Ooh. So that's a, that's a way of evading a couple. That's pretty good, yes. Yeah, but it also, it, it is... It is much more, as you say, episodic and mm. not very and very slice of life, uh, which is an interesting fit for Scorsese, who you know has done observational stuff. But there tends to be a bit of a more of a forward charge. He apparently to a lot had of it. nearly an hour bef- uh, film before she went on the road, and it was cut seriously down because test audiences just went, "This is boring." The film doesn't start till she gets moving, oh, right. and it gave a lot more backstory into her. You know the guy I called the a-hole husband, who yes. and apparently did flesh him out a lot. He's yeah. he's very much a, almost a caricature of the seventies abusive husband in this. Mm. He gets he gets one really beautiful scene that redeems him. Yeah, and mm. that uh, and that's really important. Um, but yeah, I do agree that yeah. like it would have been nice to see a little bit more in the scheme of things. But I don't think I wanted the movie to be any longer either. No, so. it's, it's 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 a very much it finishes at the right time. It's, it's. I mean, I'm, I will admit, I'm not a bigger Scorsese fan as you guys. I do like Scorsese movies, but some are some up, some down. Not as. I'm. I'm going to admit this on the internet. Kubrick leaves me cold. <laughs> Scorsese, I like better. I really did like this one. This mm. is, for a, for a monster movie yeah. explosion and boobs fan. Yeah, this was a good film. Yeah, yeah it's. It's. I. I mean, it's interesting as somebody who is a Scorsese fan and somehow has missed this all along. Um, to see kind of certain flashes. There's the prologue, which is done in these <laughs> drenched red mm-hmm. color filters that's kind of like meant to evoke sort of the Technicolor, like kind of a Star is Born kind of thing. Yeah, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, yeah. that's Wizard what Oz. I wrote down. Yeah. Yeah. Very Wizard of Oz, yeah. on a very obvious set. And then um, gets into, you know, the the gritty um, grime of Socorro, <laughs> New Mexico, <laughs> and, and just the miserable uh, thing, but also directed with... All of these, you know, dolly movements and and hand handheld actions mm. and and just with that sort of bravura that you expect from Scorsese and and the performance mm. energy that you expect as well. And so, even though slice of life connotes a certain kind of feel to it, uh, what about you? Where did it come in for you? Oh uh, well, it's uh, I was just going back to the beginning, so it definitely evoked that Wizard of Oz. I love that mm. sappy '40s music that started the film. Yeah, and then the um, and then the little girl who grew up to be Alice is singing that song as well. It's a real idolised memory of, of what she yeah. Absolutely, which the, he subverts completely by um, her mother threatening Alice with violence and then the little girl saying, blow it out her ass." <laughs> <laughs> and then we flash to modern times. Yep. And it was just... It had me right <laughs> from yeah. that moment there. It's, it, um, yeah, it's... I just... I love... 
Scorsese's constantly moving camera. That's something that uh, it's you can come to rely on, and it always it always adds to every film. You know, since one kind of a, when when her anxiety is up there, that camera's moving constantly. Mm. When she's in her more calmer moments, the camera stays a little bit more static, mm. and it's yeah. a really nice device. Just you know, you you get that anxiety, especially in that that scene, the uh, scene near the end where she's just having a meltdown and Flo right. has to take her out to the bathroom, and that camera is frenetically moving. And, and it goes outside and outside. back inside, and actually, what even though that seems quite easy, like controlling the exposure in that time yeah. with that light is actually really tricky and there's a lot of yeah, this is invisible work going yeah. on yeah yeah um yeah i so can we talk about the son alfred lutter is the actor's Absolutely. name That's um because i think in some ways if i taught a sex education class i would show two films i'd show we need to talk about kevin and i'd show this film and then it'd be like if you still want to have a kid after this, <laughs> this is what you're getting yourself in for. He's precocious, let's put it that way. He, yeah. there, there's a scene where he's telling a joke about a dog. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. And, and it, Don't make me read and, and it literally reduces um, Alice, played by Ellen Burst, into tears. And he, um, this is apparently inspired because uh, Score says he drove with Alfred to set one day for an hour. And lived through that. <laughs> and he got to set and said, I can't believe I survived that. You know, Marty's a guy who's talked recently in the Irishman um, press story. He's talked a lot about his need for silence and his need for space <laughs> and stuff like that. And so you can imagine that. But also he's like, but I think it'd be a great scene. So Yeah, you know. well, as, as a dad myself, I can say there's times that it's, you know, hanging out with the kid is amazing and talking with you is amazing. And there's times you just want to shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> not often, not often. He's in the house. He didn't hear that, did he? Yeah. <laughs> no, but, yeah, it's that that's that scene is really, you know, he's, the the kid is, he's a fantastic actor. Fantastic. Yeah. He should have been, he apparently was in the pilot of the TV series. And then they replaced him because he right. presumably... Might have been too old or something or at the time, and Hollywood, money Hollywood thing. They just went, "No, we've got someone mm. who's going to be cheaper and and you know able to do this better." But yeah, he's he's fantastic. I mean, at one point, you know, literally, I wanted to reach in the television and choke him out. It was just yeah. when he's see, when he he's you know he's he's in a tough situation. He's mm. bored out of his tree. Yeah. He's not going to school. He's got a bad influence on a young Jodie Foster. Oh yeah, and. Mm. But it's just, you're just trying to go, your mother is trying to help you, he's trying to help you, yeah. and it's all about yourself. And it, it, it's good, I mean, when you get that emotional rise out of a, a fictional character. And I was watching this really late at night for me. Normally, yeah. a drama really late at night, a two-hour-long one, probably losing focus, no, no, <laughs> not this time. <laughs> well, and it keeps you so on your toes. I have a note that I can see here. Um, Likeable Harvey Keitel. <laughs> I wrote that too. Ah. I was like, oh, "What a surprise this is!" They've really gone a different direction with this, and um, yeah, I went on to write. That feels well. a little bit off, and then only a moment later we yeah. realized why. Yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, not not the most sympathetic. Character. <laughs> Apparently, after he kind of reveals his true colors, Alan Burstyn just. Um, they finished shooting the scene and Alan Burstyn just went and cried for two hours because yeah. it was just so yeah. intense he's, and it does have fine. yeah I wouldn't absolutely. want to be in the set with him because apparently because he's a method actor of course isn't he so he would have been impossible on the set that day oh, I would have gosh. I would yeah. have just oh. done my job and got out of the way I would have held the clapperboard a long way and clicked and got the <laughs> <out of there. laughs> it's frightening yeah it has that just kind of 
we're in the room kind of energy, not we're watching somebody perform. It's just mm. like, this is something else. It's um, a character that he draws you in because it, we both wrote it. Yeah. A likable performance. He was just a really fun, nice guy. He suckers us, Martin Scorsese. Yeah. And mm. it, they sucker us into thinking, well, Harvey Keitel can be nice once in a while. Well, also, he won't have had quite the reputation yes. he had at the time. Mm. I mean, this being the early 70s. True. 74. I mean, so, you know, he's been in Mean Streets. and mm. um, I forget when F- Fingers was after this, wasn't it? But um, Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and yeah, then he, the rug pull. Yeah, and wow, a rug pull. He yeah. not only pulled the rug out from their feet, he rolled up and beat us with that. <laughs> yeah, which makes the which makes when Chris Christopherson enters the film so effective because um, you know he hadn't been in much at the time, but um, you know I, my first experience with Christopherson on screen was his iconic turn in Lone Star, where he plays the um, sheriff who turns out to have a dark secret. And, um, and of course, Christofferson has a million dollar grin and is just so good at that nice guy, but we're so primed mm. yeah. for the other shoe to fall, and yet it doesn't for so long. And it just adds to an interesting tension, which I think we'll just leave sitting we'll there. Leave rather sitting. Than We're not going to spoil it. Yeah. If we don't spoil have to spoil this one, no. we, we yeah. won't. Yeah. So, what did you guys think of Vic Tabak in this, though? I really enjoyed his performance. He's not, yeah. he's, he's the heart of the movie, basically. He's, he's there. The drama's happening around him, and he's yeah. just basically getting swept along. All he wants to do is run his business. He's got a diner, three waitresses that are driving him out of business, driving him insane. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you can tell he's, he's, he's a nice guy at heart. He's just trying to be a. Mm. to do everything that he needs to get done in a day in a shift. And I, I have yeah. someone who's worked. In that sort of situation, has worked in a cafe at one stage. Yeah, tensions boil over, people walk out, and it's only just needs one person to pull it together and fix the guy. But um, and yeah. so, uh, so he's your hero, a, really. He, yeah, he's. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was just pulling from. I mean, if I would, I would not have been able to be in that situation. The stress on that, if that was me in a real life situation, I would have down tools and once again out the door, out the door. Yeah. <laughs> I love how understated the performance was too. It's mm. uh, having grown up with the TV show Alice. He's uh, his character in Alice is much more belligerent, more gruff. That's what I remembered. Yeah, yeah I had a tr- trouble reconciling the two. Absolutely. So it's that gruffness then you dig deep down and has a heart of gold and this mm. one he's just a human being. Mm. He's just someone who um, has lost his wife as as they do hint to that the the cafe is Melon Ruby's Cafe, right. which he keeps it as Melon Ruby's Cafe. And he ha- he clearly has a sense of humor because he gets on really well with Flo and they have this back and forth back and of forth really yeah. quite dirty back and forth. <laughs> yeah, awesome. very 70s banter, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I, I love that performance and uh, I can see why they wanted to use him again in the TV show. That yeah, was, it was interesting. Was it, just, it just didn't... Um pop for me in in any in the way that i remembered it but in you know as as you say it it fits very well into the fabric of the film but it doesn't feel like it has the dna for the show i feel like mm. actually diane mm. ladd's character is a bit more of that kind of um tone uh, yeah mm. I, I don't really remember way. the tv series i don't think i watched that i, okay. I remember the, once once we hit that first scene in the diner and there's the three waitresses i went okay now i recognize the show and can put it in my head, but I don't think yeah. I watched that much of it, so I didn't really have the baggage of, of what Big Tabak's character was like. 
at the time. And it would be interesting for me now to go and have a look at an episode of that and just see the differences. But um, as I say, if you're taking something that is a drama, a fairly serious drama with a yeah. lot of good comedy, and then taking mm. it to a full-on sitcom, yeah, it's gonna you're gonna have to rewrite those characters because you couldn't have as much <laughs> that serious drama on that. People would not have gone for it in, in the 1980s when it was you know you needed those sitcoms that were just wacky punchline, yeah. bang, bang, bang. Well, and also start you know like child abuse and things like that. Yeah, that, yeah, that you know, was probably not. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know. Yeah, it was a different time in a way, you know. I mean, <laughs> there's that one of these days, Alice Pow, right in the kiss. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's like, oh, yeah. some comedy for you. Yeah, <laughs> spousal abuse. But yeah. it's also interesting, and I, I didn't know it when I was watching it, but when I was just researching, that um, this was uh, Martin Scorsese was, as you kind of hinted at, was a director for hire on this yeah. one. It wasn't his usual write and passion project. Well, he and there's a... Um, there's a series that he did about American cinema and he talks about how in American directors, there's often this one for me, one for them kind of thing. And where you have to do one for the system where they'll trust you enough to get the money. And you can, and some people have often looked, used that to look at his filmography to be like, Oh, that's the one he did. You know, uh, and sometimes <laughs> they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. So that one's the Avengers end game. That yeah. Yeah. Was. Well, the Russo's just keep doing it for them. <laughs> uh, but this one's um, a sleepy hollow. That yeah. one's the planet of the apes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, uh, but, but yeah, but you can see that with like boxcar Bertha being, you know, the exploitation one, and then mean streets being his, um, you know, personal statement and then getting to do a film like Alice, which will have had, been a studio film with bigger funding that will have then um, let the next doors open up for him and, you know, leading the um, way eventually to Taxi Driver because, you know, you've got Jodie Foster in here and mm. um, the the uh, relationship with Warner Brothers. And so there's, there's a logic to that kind of thinking. And so I, I, think, I think there definitely have been films throughout the way that have been based more around... I mean, The Departed, I think, was some, a film which famously was something that he didn't really initiate with him that he uh, came to, and um, but I think that's one of his best films. Mm. I, I, it's a minority opinion, but I think it's a terrific film. And sometimes I think often directors do their best work when they're kind of forced into a corner and they're not just relying on mm. their um, impulses or they're not so cowed by their passion project that they have to get everything just right and sh- there's something to be said for shooting from your gut and mm. i think like with this film you know there's um the ending actually they only came up with the day before um because there was a big fight with the studio i mean um the diner is in tucson uh alice is heading as it said when she hits the road near the start to monterey california and so there's this tension of does she stay in tucson um, where the Chris Christopherson is, or does she go on to Monterey? And there was this big fight with the studio, and um, and the studio's like, well, if she leaves the guy and goes on to Monterey, that's an unhappy ending. And if she stays here, where she's not singing, that's it. but she's with Chris, that's a happy ending. And Ellen's like, you're full of shit, you know? It's like, <laughs> like you're saying, you're saying if she that. gives yeah. up her dream, you know? yeah. and um, and the, and so literally the day before. Uh, Chris Christopherson comes up with the line of dialogue that slices the uh, Gordian knot with that that they, they've set themselves into by thinking mm. of the problem in a certain way, which again, I won't spoil, but um, sets up 
this amazing open ending that kind of just fits just right into this uh, universe that you can't even quite work out if it's happy or unhappy, but it's right. Yeah. Yes. And also a nice little incidental, coincidental shot that involved a uh, shopping mall. Oh, yes. Monterey Shopping Mall, which yes. they said was not planned. They just oh, were on really? that street, okay. and then the DOP went, did you spot that? <laughs> and Miles Gossage just keep that on the shop. Yeah. <laughs> keep that on the shop. So sometimes luck just happens there. Yeah. I did love that dinosaur scene. Did you, did you notice uh, Laura Dern, tiny Laura Dern? She's no. a little girl at the end of the counter wow. eating the ice cream. And oh, my gosh. She, they did 19 takes because of Scorsese, uh, and she ate 19 ice creams during that <laughs> oh, scene. Oh, my gosh. And... Because, she's, of course, she's the daughter of... Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern and... and um, uh, Lauren... Um, oh, God. <laughs> Diane. Diane. Diane Ladd. Oh, Lad. Diane Ladd. Diane Ladd's so yes. daughter. Course, so, yeah. Diane, so she brought her on set. Martin Scorsese apparently told Diane Ladd afterwards, if she can do 19 takes eating an ice cream and not throwing up, she's got to be an actress. So, Scorsese predicted... Origin stories. <laughs> and they just had a party the other night at the Academy Awards together. Oh, so, nice. you know, hopefully Laura Dern came and uh, thanked, her, thanked him for uh, that little contribution. Nice. Um, one more thing before we leave, and it was just one thing I noticed on the uh, the film was that the executive producer was Larry Cohen. Mm. Oh, really? I, I missed yeah. that. Um, I just bought that myself, and um, because there is more than one right. Larry Cohen I chose to I keep ignorance and not be too specific, because uh, I'd I like to think it up, but I would that like it was the Larry Cohen of uh, Q the Winged Serpent. God told me to, oh, yes. Many, yes. many, many yeah. stuff. movies. Uh, the ambulance surprised me, but um, I'm not going to look it up. I'm just going to pretend it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But those films were shot in New York, just like the film we're about to talk about. Oh, <laughs> we got a good segue. We in. got it that time. There we go. Oh, wow. And now, who wants to start with this one? <laughs> oh well, I haven't done much research on this one, but I don't think it's necessary. We watched Little Murders. It's a 1971 movie. It was uh, directed by Alan Arkin, so it was his feature film debut. Yes. Alan Arkin, more famously an, an actor and an Oscar-winning actor more in more recent times. Little Miss Sunshine, 2006. And that's the one. Mm-hmm. And uh, it starred Elliot Gould, amongst others. There's Vincent Gardinia, um... I didn't write down. Donald Sutherland is. Uh, oh yes. So there's there's uh, there's sort of a the two leads. I mean, basically, it's a story about young lovers coming together and learning to overcome obstacles, uh, in an in a New York that's completely fucked. Yeah, that's, that is a good summation. I mean, that's actually better than the IMDb <laughs> one I, I painstakingly wrote out. But uh, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, let's face it. New York. I mean, I, I love New York movies, and I love New York. Yeah, Seventies and eighties movies where New York was pretty much a hellhole in parts of it. And this film, it's after you've watched crumbly. it, will have you running towards New York. <laughs> so you can run through New York yeah. and go to anywhere fucking else. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, it was, uh, you know, in the in the 80s, Italian movie directors would shoot post-apocalyptic movies in New York. Just on Detroit the street wasn't invented. No, yet. exactly, yeah. because the urban decay was so bad that they, I mean, one of the directors uh, or producers, I think he said he got off at the wrong subway stop and got out of the Bronx. It got back on the subway and immediately <laughs> wrote uh, Escape from the Bronx. Right. And, which, because it was literally like he stepped into a war zone. 
And I mean, this, this was '77, so yeah, things were going bad from there. I mean, you, you looked up the murder stats, didn't you? Oh yeah. So there's a there's a stat uh, in the film that somebody talks about 345 unsolved homicides in six months, and I'm like. Well, Jules Pfeiffer, who's the cartoonist who wrote the play, which he then adapted into the screenplay for this, was probably exaggerating a bit, but I feel like it was something around there. And the stats for the five years leading up to this film, 1967, 746 homicides, 1968, 986, 1969, 1043, 1970, 1117, and 1971, 1,466. So four homicides a day. Um, To say nothing of literally every other sort of crime, to say nothing about the... um, failing power grid which is a recurring uh motif in the film where lights Mm. just come off and on for no real reason and people just uh have candles convenient uh because that's going on um elliot gould our lead just um gets beat up in the street because that's what's going to happen and you know people are going to beat you up if that's that's what they want and uh, the quicker you get it over with the better (laughs) his actual, um, his words on that which I had to write down because I I thought it was awesome, was uh, I want to do what I want to do, not what other people want me to do (laughs) so that's his way of allowing himself to be beaten up so he can get on and do what he wants to do Mm. rather than have any other obstacles in his way, which uh, is a interesting philosophy, but not one, not the most interesting as we go on. No, I mean, and Alec Gould's character is, is I mean, he's, he's he, when you first see him, he looks clinically depressed. I mean, he talks like Elliot Goblet, and he, that's a reference Doug won't get, and he just, <laughs> nah. he doesn't crack a smile, and he... He's a photographer. Uh, we won't say what of because that's an amazing revelation in the yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> but he he just basically is just meandering through life, just accepting that everything is shit and nothing's going to get better. And that's uh, and I think the thing is that that character who is somebody calls it says you're you're not a pacifist. He says no, I'm an apathist. <laughs> and uh, and to have a character that's that sort of not driven in a conventional way. Uh, and as you know, his um, female part- partner, who he meets, who Marsha Rod, who's um, trying to win his heart, and thinks you know that you know romance is all about fighting, and is forever perplexed because he doesn't fight. And um, oh, that but, leads me into but, it's uh, he doesn't know how to fight. That's why I'm not winning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you have to have a certain type of charisma to be able to be that much of a loser quote-unquote and still just be watchable and be an effective audience surrogate and that's the magic of Elliot Gould and you know of so many of these 70s films is he perfectly embodies the disdain or disappointment with the American dream and what it's turned into and I just love watching him and all all, everything he did in the 70s. I mean very early in the movie uh, Patsy Beth has Soon to be girlfriend takes him on a, a a day just to have fun, and it's right. it's everything from ten pin bowling to archery and tennis, tennis, and it's just <laughs> I, I wrote that down as Force Fun Friday, which is what I used to call it. I worked in a call center when it's like dress up in silly costumes and yeah. we'll play games, and it's like I don't want to do this. I'm in a call center. It's not fun. Don't make me have fun. Yeah. And that was what I could see in his face. It was kind of well, I like this girl, but. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to be having fun just because you are telling me this is fun. Yeah, 
You know, he had an entirely different mindset to her. And, you know, everyone changes in a relationship, but you can't force that change. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel like another writer would have got a whole movie just about relationships and about the relationship between one person who loves the person that they see that person that that their partner has the possibility to turn into and that other person who has no interest in turning into that person and yet what's amazing about little murders is how uh i don't know if it's intersectional or omnidirectional or what you describe it but that sort of perception with perception of and disgust for and obsession with all the ways society is omni-fucked. Um, <laughs> you know, from religion to authority to sexuality to, you know, um, crime to, uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, there's, there's a bit where they're talking about um, her dead brother and, you know, talks about how he um, killed people in Korea and Vietnam as, you know, a, a jet point fire. And then it's like, and then he was killed on the street here. And he was the nicest guy. Everybody liked him. <laughs> what we haven't actually mentioned is that this is a comedy. It is we, a it's pitch a, black comedy, but it is it's it is it is very funny. funny. It's funny, funny as fuck. Yes. Let's yeah. let's just call this. It's, it's a very silly thing, which it, it makes you laugh and then goes. By the way, yeah. screech and things change, and we won't talk about the change. We're not going to talk anything past the second half of the movie. The point oh where I wrote gosh. down what the fuck just happened in my notes, yeah. legitimately, because. Didn't see it coming, and neither will you. And the film couldn't have been set anywhere but New York. It was a film yeah. about New York. Yeah. Felt. New York's always a character in seventies, and and even more so in this one. And I, I loved the way the movie opened. So there was no music on the opening at all, and we just the camera just focuses on a sleeping woman, and then New York yeah. starts to invade. Yeah, it's the there's the alarm radio goes on. There's a a phone call from an obscene caller. There's um, <laughs> there's people who happen to um, uh, New York slobs, young uh, hooligans outside the window who happen to see her pass and start abusing her, catcalling. It's and and that's what this film is like the whole way through. Is New York just starts stabbing at you yeah. yeah but in a very funny way <laughs> yeah it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a tough trick to take something that could could be incredibly now but could be you know a real ball crushing you know kind in a movie and making you laugh that hard at the start of it and then slowly starting to twist that knife and we've done a couple of them in the last two weeks i mean this one yeah. going back to joe this was oh yeah this had very joe vibes but in a much more I'm much more New York. So my very first note just said this is a very New York City vibe. And I didn't even know it was set in New York right off the bat. But yeah, it reminds me of um, Brian De Palma's High Mom as well, which we should watch sometime, which has a similar... I mean, it's that kind of, if you can't laugh, you'll scream sort of mm-hmm. attitude. And, and Joe's not nearly as comedic as this, but it the intensity of feeling in every line and in every um i mean the performances are literally hysterical in some cases you oh, know some mm-hmm. incredible soliloquies yeah oh um, <laughs> there's there's three sort of guest characters that show up and give amazing speeches so there's mm-hmm. lou jacoby is the judge and then donald sutherland is the minister 
and finally Alan Arkin is the detective, and each of them just um, kind of come in, take over the movie for five minutes, and then leave. <laughs> and Lucy Gobby's um, point, pretty much you, every other character could have left. Yeah. And it could have just been him in an empty room, which it practically was at certain points, and it yeah. still would have been amazingly compelling. Yeah. But yeah, if anyone ever wants to do that as an audition piece, you're going to get a role. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you're, Lujacobi, you get it right. yeah, Lou Jacoby literally leaves the room and uh, <laughs> continues to, to use his. And, the camera, um, yeah. We have to I chase mean, him down. The young yeah. couple are just like, I guess we go follow the, <laughs> the roving soliloquy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's there's there's just such a freedom in and one of the things uh, I was listening to a podcast talking about a mid eighties uh, movie that hopefully we'll do at some point called Furious, which was a no budget kung fu movie, which is nothing like this except that um, at some point near the end of it, he's like, you know, all these people now, all they do, they don't have any imagination. You know, they just make a movie about people talking in a room, and it's like, you know, this movie is not that expensive and could have been done even more cheaply. You know, the only thing that's... There's a, there's a couple scenes with a few extras in it, but mostly you could do it even cheaper with imagination. But I can't think of many indies, and certainly n- no studio films, that are anywhere near as dangerous or like provocative as this that have come out in years. Mm. Um, and I think... There's, there's just not a target that people aim for anymore, you know? I mean, something like Get Out, which everybody's like, ooh, you know, that's an edgy thing, you know, because it you know, just feels very, like, safe compared to Little Murders. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Little Murders, I mean, you could definitely, even if you hadn't been told, you could tell it was from a stage play, even if it wasn't a credit at the yeah. start. This, a lot of times you find that, I find that plays that, are translated, you can just get the feeling within minutes of watching it yeah. that mm. we're watching a film version of it because the, the dialogue is all important mm. and they tend to be a little more you know, set-bound, a little more yeah. in those tiny apartments that they had there. And they were very nice, authentic, tiny New York City apartments. Yeah. Only missing the bathtub in the <laughs> kitchen. Though they didn't mention bathtub in the kitchen, which I thought was a nice callback to Joe. Yeah. <laughs> There's, um, there are a couple places where it's obviously opened up, like with the horse riding sequence yeah. where they're talking mm. across that and they've they've obviously tried to add a couple places to mm. open it where they can but for the most part it um, and it was that long awkward yeah. dinner scene when he first oh. meets Patsy's parents in the most 70s 70s apartment just the early 70s design. apartment it's sure. it's the, the the 70s ideal of once you got the shake pole carpet down you put as much as much zany shirt around the, there as possible wow. there was just every section of the walls every end table there was joys yeah. on there so in between the dialogue which was doing my head in quite frankly well, to I was, say this scene yeah. was excruciating is an understatement it yeah. was enjoyable and excruciating at the yeah. same time we even had to take a break halfway through <laughs> to the little intermission yeah just to get our heads back together I mean, one of the interesting things about that set is like there's there's like an Egyptian lampshade or something, yeah. and then there's like this Renaissance kind of wall yeah. thing that extends into this fence that's actually in it's their kitchen that they have to yeah. jump over. But it's almost like this kind of like here's the history of Western civilization <laughs> yeah. in this apartment. And then um, in a later scene, uh, he goes to Chicago to meet our guest star uh, guest star we haven't even mentioned yes. our guest star um, Doris and, Roberts uh, Doris Roberts who is, turns out to be Elliot Gould's mom in this and um, they have posters for um, 
cubism and Paul Klee, and they talk about books and um, books yeah, and, all, books and he asks all these questions, and it all just comes back to Freud's theories and this person's theories, and an even more depressing scene than what we've seen oh. had come before it. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's interesting because you're expecting a certain manic energy, and it's dialed back in a really interesting way that it just. It's not even resistance. It's just kind of happening in a. He just mm. he's, you know, he's a character who for the whole film has been able to sort of sit back in the world comes to him a bit, and now he's leaning forward, and it's not even coming to him. It's just kind of they're in this little bubble of that, and that, and that. At the end of that leads into this extraordinary monologue from Elliot Gould. Um, which turns out not to be a monologue, no. um, and which it takes us even crazier places. It, it, that I'm going to go on record and saying that's one of my favorite scenes that I've seen in a long time. Yeah, it is full it's, stop. Just from the beginning absolutely. to the end of that scene is just it, it's just so audacious on well. so many long levels. Takes. Long mm. takes and just um, and and just where it asks you to go. And where it, where you have no idea that it's going, um, is yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's yeah. I mean, it's like four or five minutes long. Just his dialogue yeah. with apparently just two vase of flowers in front of him, and at the end of it, as you say, the, once again, the rug is pulled so severely out from under our feet. It was just like the yeah. rug was yeah. never even. It was there. Never. <laughs> there is no rug. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, just a, it's a stunning film. It's. One thing I wanted to mention is, um, as way back we mentioned that Elliot Gould was an apathist. And, uh, and then they also, throughout the film, they show us how the rest of New York and various factions of New York are full of apathy as well. It's, uh, it's the, uh, the scene with the family so where they uh, the way that they treat the the rolling blackouts the way they treat the train that goes by and shakes the whole oh, house is that what it was i wonder what was going oh, on oh yeah there. that's right yeah and it's the it's just just another they thing just, and they like just roll on through it, it just yeah. as elliot gould has chosen to roll through life not allowing it to affect him just as Donald Sutherland's minister, uh, you know, yeah. famously has had a less than successful mm. career in terms of the longevity of the marriages he's overseen. Yeah, he's, not, he's not batting 100, no. <laughs> but, he, but he's not really concerned. Anything. No, it's all right, as, Every, as he Everything's says. okay, yeah. It's it's, okay. Um, Maybe it wasn't meant to be. It's okay. And um, there's a climactic scene, which I can only allude to, where... Um, where Elliot Gould is on a subway and everyone on that subway is just as apathetic as he oh. is. They just if it, if, it, if they, the same scene played out today, yeah, there would be chaos. And instead, it's just New York. Yeah. It's, it's New just York. no you emotion. Just, they're just rolling through it. They they take enough time to look, but not enough time to care. Yeah, yeah. None of my business. And that scene and that is that's a, how you survived in New York in the seventies and eighties. You did not get involved in other people's mm. business. Yeah. Sometimes I have uh, dreams about going to those marquees that you see in New York in the late seventies and early eighties. Forty Second Street. Yeah, and and it's like, oh, that'd be amazing. And then you know, you inevitably like you dig an inch deep and you'll hear stories. Oh, yeah, I went to a movie there and somebody got thrown off a balcony. Yeah, yeah. If if I had a time machine and a stab-proof vest, I'd go to the Deuce. But (laughs) you know, I'd see a triple feature of and I'd get the hell out of there before some crack addict you know mugged (laughs) me. 
yeah, it's yeah. it's it was not a pretty sight back yeah. in those days. I mean, you know, you can have those rose tinted, you know, the, yeah. the you know the 2019 shit, 2020 shit. Oh, yeah, but you look back and there's always been a good underbelly of shit going on in society. And I you find know. it ironic that a film that is so much about apathy and shows it in so many different ways makes you feel every single possible emotion you mm. can feel. It's uh, it's just the absolute gamut. Yeah, I think that's it is extraordinary that it goes to such absurdist extremes, mm-hmm. yet comes back to things that are so grounded. And that's a real gift that you don't often... I mean, there's plenty of wacky movies from the 70s and and after a certain point you're just like yep this is i love some of those movies but it'd be like if you got to the end of holy mountain you suddenly felt choked up you know you'd be like, <laughs> yeah. that happen you know it's, uh... <laughs> and it starts off as a it's essentially a love story ish where it's a a meet cute where a woman who's being attacked by a bunch of youths it's uh, them runs after. The... I wrote it down. Violent meat cute. Exactly yes, what it, is in my notes. Well, she's a... getting attacked because she's saved Elliot Gould's character. Saved his character. life, and yeah. then and yeah. then uh, Elliot Gould. It's uh, she runs after Elliot Gould to berate him, and then in the next scene we see that they are together on a date. Yeah. Well, in his apartment, right? Apartment. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And I, no, I wrote down. Yeah. I wrote down at the time. Why does she? So the character's name Patsy. Why does she want to be with someone who she knows won't defend her? And then. That gets answered about 45 minutes yeah. in. Yeah. As she says herself, I love the man I wanted to mould you into. <laughs> and, 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 and also like that he leaves her to get beat up as well yeah. is a, a thing that seems really extreme and difficult and yet fits fully into the world views. Yeah. And that's that's the... And the character I, I guess the thing is it's not on. quite absurdist in that sense and that it's like actually the characters are very honed in and their actions aren't arbitrary. They're just... Um, they're really navigating this obstacle course of what's a rational way to survive in such a ludicrously irrational place. Wow, I think I think we can all safely say we freaking love this. Movie. Yeah, it was yeah. it's it's not the sort of thing I would have sat down by myself and gone, I'm going to watch this movie, uh, especially if I'd heard a synopsis or even a, an inkling of what it's about, but really did enjoy it, which is what. This podcast is going to be great for. I'm going to introduce these guys to movies they would never watch if I put a gun to their head, <laughs> and now they have to. And I'm going to see some amazing films, so um, that don't have explosions in them. So. <laughs> there weren't even boobs in this one. I, I will admit I've seen Boxcar Bertha ten years before I saw, well, ten fifteen years before I saw Mean Streets. I saw Mean Streets last year. For the I, first time. I still haven't seen Boxcar Bertha. Oh, so. yes, yeah, it's fun. It's okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we'll find an excuse to do that. We could definitely do that. I'm sure. Uh, so we have we have yes, we, let's, uh, we don't have any any errata from last year. Everything was completely ludicrously accurate last time. Uh, or just uh, or, the things that are inaccurate, no one's caught a sign. We, 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 we researched. We haven't properly thorough. gone to air. So, so to, to finish up, I think we should plug our beer sponsor who we bought ourselves. Oh uh, uh, yes, the Funk Estate Cosmic Hustle. Strawberry yogurt sour ale, very nice. And we've been drinking as well the uh, Howartow passion fruit sour. No, sawmill, sawmill. Was oh, it sawmill? Not sawmill the passion fruit sour, nice. Uh, oh yes, sour day. Mm. Sawmill's good to support because they've just had a big fire up there. About to reopen the new distillery next, uh, new brewery next week. So, and we may be plugging them, but we are in no way related or sponsored by. But these if they companies. want to sponsor us or uh, any other breweries, <laughs> send us beer at hotmail.com. <laughs> and on that note, take care. And see you next time. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.